right, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 6. If you need to use one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find that on page 241. 2 Samuel chapter 6, page 241 in the pew Bibles. This morning, as we pick up our study again in 2 Samuel, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Would you stand for the reading of God's word? 2 Samuel chapter 6, I'm going to read from verse 1 to 11. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. Verse 5, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household." This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. So, I grew up in the ocean. I love it. Um, I don't think there was a week of my life growing up in the islands of Hawaii that somehow, some way, I didn't make my way down to the beach and get a swim in the ocean. If I'm honest, I cannot remember the first time I walked as a child, but I can remember the first time I swam. Uh, I have very few fond memories of the islands that do not include the beaches and the water and the ocean. But there's also something else I know. Never, ever turn your back on her. Do not take her for granted. Do not assume that you know her better than you do. Be aware of her. Pay attention of her. Fear her. Growing up, the stories, the cautionary tales were in abundance of basically, you know, UP mainlanders who came to the island only to be taken in by her beauty just to be betrayed by her power. Now, don't get me wrong. Okay, just to be clear. The, the, the waters, the oceans, the beaches around Hawaii, they're beautiful. They're good. It's one of the best things about growing up there. But that doesn't mean they're all safe, Right? Just because something is good does not mean that it's safe. There's a lot of things that are good that aren't safe. Um, For example, I've been riding motorcycles for years now. Of the four motorcycles I've owned in my life, I've been, uh, I've crashed and been hit by another car on two of the four, right? So, I mean, that's still, I tell my wife, that's 50%. That's a good record right there. (laughs) There's a lot of things in life that are good, but they're not necessarily safe. Fire's another one. Now, fire's another one of these unique dynamics that it actually is a good thing, but it's not safe. So we use fire, we swim in the ocean, I ride my motorcycles. We do all kinds of things that are, because of the reward, is worth the risk. And all these things we can manage, by and large, if you don't forget or ignore the risk. If you do, 
that's when you become reckless. And that is when tragedy can strike. Well, this people of God, as we read this morning, they learned that lesson brutally. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 11 is a challenge for us because in our culture, we can be tempted to think that intentions are all that matter, right? It's the thought that counts is, is kind of the things we say. And so we believe that, hey, as long as we're genuine, then God is happy. As long as we're trying, God is satisfied with our attempts. When you think about it, in, in our, um, I think, well-intended efforts to take God to the masses, to make the gospel message palatable, palatable to modern sensibilities, to be culturally relevant, I think a lot of Christians, and unfortunately a lot of churches, have become reckless. I'll never forget when I kind of realized that, that that was going on. I was probably in my mid-20s. I was playing the cajon, one of those hand drums, at this kind of spontaneous worship jam session that happens all through a lot on Bible college campuses. We were in the commons area of our dorm. There's probably about 25, 30 of us just having this wonderful night on a Tuesday night. And we were singing the popular songs of the day. And one of the songs we were singing had this line in the chorus, make me drunk in your spirit. Now, I don't know if you're old enough to remember worship songs from the 90s, and I don't remember what song that was, but I remember listening to it, and I was going, okay, I'm just going to let that one pass first round. By the time we got to the third round, I just, I stopped, and, and I was like, wait, hold on a second. So, you know, all 30 people come to an abrupt stop as they're singing, their eyes open up, their hands come down, and I'm like, wait, did you... Are we actually saying, and, and this is kind of cue the eye roll, because I was the guy in Bible college, always asking questions, always wondering about our theology. Why do we do certain things the way we do? I never just accepted them on face value because I didn't grow up in the church, so a lot of it was new. But I said, are we actually saying that God, the Holy Spirit, is comparable to a bottle of Jim Beam? Is that what we're saying here? Make me drunk on your spirit. I don't think he's Jack Daniels here. And of course, they got upset, and, and they started saying things like, I'm constantly quenching the Spirit, because what we say doesn't matter, because we were so moved, it's how we feel that counts. Man, we became reckless. Today, in this morning, in our passage, David and Israel and us, as we crash into the holiness of God, we are reminded of a really important truth, that God is good, but he is not safe. And, and understanding that difference can make the difference between life and death as we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at these 11 verses from four different angles. So here they are. Good intentions. How good is God? How God is not safe? And then what do we do with that? So that's how we're going to look at our 11 verses this morning. Let's take the first one. Good intentions. And here we have verse 1 and 2 and 5 and 6. And our chapter opens with David amassing thousands of troops and all the people gathering as a nation in solidarity to go down and get the ark and bring it home to Jerusalem. So as we start this, let's just acknowledge the fact that what the people of God here are doing is a good thing. Right, this is them just knocking it out of the park. I mean, and the reason I say that is, and if you've been here in our study of 2 Samuel, you know we really can't say that that very often about the people of God. So they're just nailing it here. I mean, remember from chapter 5, uh, the people are one, the nation is one, the land is one, the king is enthroned, and their first official act as a people. 
is to place the worship of Yahweh, the one true and living God, right at the center of their national lives. That's good. That's a good thing. Remember, uh, we learned from two weeks ago, Jerusalem, the, the city as the capital, is at the center of the nation. So they want Jerusalem at the center of the nation. They have it there. They want God at the center of Jerusalem. And so they are going to get the ark and put it right in Jerusalem so that the very presence of God is in the center of Jerusalem and Jerusalem is in the center of their lives. That's sending a good message. They're going to prioritize the worship of God. Imagine the scene. Remember, when you read the Old Testament, right? And this is what's great. If you're brand new to reading your Bible, you kind of have an advantage to some of us who've been reading it over and over again because we just kind of then go, we just read it over and over again. But if you're reading this, how many did it say? 30,000. That's a lot of people. Can you imagine 30,000 people singing, celebrating, Laughing, it is a parade of praise. You ever been to the Rose Parade, right? Um, when, my, when my kids were younger, we used to live in a small town USA in Columbia, Missouri. We used to have parades on Broadway, and it was great, right? It was only just a few hundred people. Could you imagine tens of thousands of these people in one accord? And, and taking make into mind, up until recently, what have they known? Civil war, defeat, fear, strife, misery, confusion, apathy towards the Lord. Their, their religious lives were nothing more than formality and religiosity, but no more. They have turned a corner and led by no less than the king himself. Guys, this is a sweet scene. I mean, just breathe it in, because if you know your Bible, you know it's not going to last, right? So take it in. They are stoked on God. If you've ever had an experience of God working in a sweet way in your life, you know that feeling, right? So they want to bring the ark. Let's bring it right into the center of our lives. Now, it's been generations since we've even heard or seen of the ark. As a matter of fact, as readers for us, it's been at least four or five decades ago uh, that we've seen the ark. I mean, it could have been... 1 Samuel 14, 18, but there's a translational, there's, there's a little anomaly. It could be translated ark or ephod. We're not sure, but for sure we last saw the ark in 1 Samuel 7. So we're talking 50, 60 years ago, and that's when it was brought to its current location and then pretty much forgotten about this whole time. The ark was the most important symbol of the presence of God with his people Israel, hence the name, the Ark of the Covenant. That's why it's called that. Now, during Saul's reign, and if you were here, if you remember when we studied through 1 Samuel, and um, the Ark basically was neglected, forgotten about, ignored. As, almost as if, as if evidence of Saul's failure to fear, serve, obey, and follow the Lord. So, uh, 1 Chronicles 13 to 15 is a parallel passage to 2 Samuel 6. And so sometimes by reading these parallel passages, you get little insights that the text you're looking at doesn't have, have and that, that's what we get here. So, so this is what David says, Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Right? And right below that is basically 1 Samuel 12 when God is telling his people how this monarchy is supposed to work. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if you, both you and your king who reigns over you, will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. 
And David and his people, they are determined not to make the same mistake. As, we, as this chapter opens up, there's no other way than to read this text and say, the people of God had the best of intentions, man. They, were, they had the best of intentions. And the reason I say that is because, A, as I said in the opening, it is a temptation of our society to say that it, it, the, the intentions, all that matters. Well, that's wrong. But it's equally wrong to say that intentions don't matter at all, right? That's, that's equally wrong. Intentions do mean something. It's a revelation of your heart. It expresses where your heart is at. So we, we want to balance that as we look at passages like this. This is a rare moment where the people of God want to rejoice. They want to serve. They want to obey. They want to follow. And it makes sense why they want to do all these things. It's because man, God is good. And they have experienced that goodness. The ark itself, the ark itself was an expression of the very goodness of God to them. So let's talk about that next. The ark of the covenant, it is this amazing thing of mystery, almost fantasy, almost mythical, right? But it's not mythical, it's actual, an actual piece of history. But I mean, how many of you are immediately thinking of Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? And yeah, so all those pictures come to your mind because it's this amazing vessel, for lack of a better way to put it. Listen in verse 2 to the high regard that the author talks about the ark. The ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now the ark, if you remember, we're introduced to the ark in Exodus chapter 25. And the ark is the footstool of the Lord's throne, which is why he says he's enthroned upon the cherubim. These are the cherubim right here, and that's his footstool. So he's enthroned above them. Now, cherubim obviously are not these chubby, rosy-cheeked, fat babies of medieval paintings, right? I, I don't know. That was Satan trying to twist our mind here. The cherubim are awesome creatures, and they're always associated with the presence of God. The first time we read of the cherubim, and, and, and if you read scripture, there are certain classifications of angels, the seraphim, the cherubim. The cherubim's job was to guard the presence of God. The first time we see them is in Genesis chapter 3. After sin enters to the world and man is basically kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God puts two cherubim with flaming swords to guard the, the eastern entrance to the Garden of Eden, uh, Eden to make sure that man never again gets back into the garden, Right? Now, that would be a cool Indiana Jones movie, wouldn't it? But, but the point is, that's where we first see the cherubim. And all throughout Scripture, we see these fearsome creatures, and their job was to guard the holy presence of God from any kind of uncleanliness whatsoever. Every time the cherubim show up, that's what they're doing from Genesis to Revelation. This ark, then, is the, the symbol of the very manifestation, the very presence of God upon the earth. The ark was part of the larger tabernacle system, for lack of a better word, and these are some graphics I have that you can see it. So this is the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was basically with the people of Israel from Exodus all the way through up uh, 1 Samuel 4, and then it kind of it, it gets destroyed at Shiloh. But the point is, what you have here is the altar, and they have sacrifices there. And then you had this kind of basin, oftentimes called the sea, where the priests would clean themselves ceremonially. And then you had this uh, tarped area here, that's called the holy place. 
Inside the holy place, you have the, the bread of presence, the menorah there, the candles. And then there's this curtain here. And behind the curtain, you can see that is the Ark of the Covenant. And maybe you can see there's like this like smoke coming up, representative of the very glory and presence of God. Now, when the people of God would march forward, the tabernacle, all of that stuff would get packed up. And it would be the Ark that would lead the way representative of God himself leading the 12 tribes of Israel into the promised land that he promised to give them. You can see that in Numbers chapter 10, verses 35 and 36. So um, here, here's the, the tabernacle there in the middle, and you can see all the tribes of Israel would be camped in concentric circles around the tabernacle. Again, even back then, symbolizing at the center of their lives together was the Lord God. So, so even in their architecture, right, uh, the way they laid out their camps was always a reminder that the center of our lives is not ourselves, but Yahweh, the Lord God. Now, the ark contained three items within it. Inside of the ark, you had three things, the stone tablets that the Ten Commandments were inscribed upon, a jar containing manna, which was the wafer bread-like material that God had fed the children of Israel in the wilderness for for about 40 years, and then Aaron's rod. Now, the ark underscores God's rule, God's word, God's grace to the people. In short, it underscored the goodness of God to them. This is where God would speak to them and reveal his will for them. Exodus 25, 22, Moses would go in and God would speak to Moses from above the cherubim and give him the commands that he was then to give the people of God. In Leviticus 16, once a year, the high priest could go behind in the Holy of Holies. That was the only time, the only day he could go is the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur. It's from the Hebrew words, Yom being day, Kippur meaning to cover, the day of covering, the day of atonement. One day a year, the priest could go in there and bring sacrifices, and God would forgive his people of their sins. This ruling, this reconciling, this revealing God is at the heart of Israel's life. And to bring this ark into Jerusalem was to proclaim that the majestic, the pardoning, the speaking God was at the center of their lives. How good was that? And that's what they wanted. They wanted that. I mean, who wouldn't? Even today, in different ways, whether you're a Christian or not, religious or not, Everyone is seeking for the transcendent. Everyone is seeking for some understanding. Everyone's seeking for guidance. The ark is just another reminder that the people of God have always had that. The ark is not just a symbol of that. It is the very manifestation of those three things. This, what we're seeing here in 2 Samuel 6, these few verses, this is an absolute good all the way around. The people wanted to serve him. The people wanted to obey him. The people wanted to follow him. So what's the problem? The problem is the people forgot to fear him. And it had catastrophic results. Because while God is good, he is not safe. And they learned that lesson the hard way. In this case, it was the death of Uzziah. Imagine the scene, friends. Again, thousands upon thousands, a massive parade like you've never seen. The singing, the dancing, the laughing, the shouting, the music, all this is going on. And then all of a sudden, the stirring, the shock, the sight, 
the spreading silence. Remember, it's not like everyone knows what happened to Uzziah and, and that was it. All of a sudden, it spreads throughout the camp. Like They're dancing around and you go, you're not dancing. What is happening? What happened over there? Because now there is the sight, the shock, the spreading silence, the body, Uzzah's body, lying there right next to the ark, motionless, still, dead, struck down. Can you imagine the shock of the people immediately around that where they saw what had taken place? And they're thinking, what the heck? I mean, talk about a 180 of a situation. You are doing your best. You think this, this is awesome. We're, gonna, we're loving God. We're doing all that we're supposed to do. We're bringing the ark back to, the, to, to Jerusalem. What the heck? What just happened? You can imagine the, the word spreads. Hey, I saw the ark. It was going. And it, 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 it Uzzah stretched out his hand to steady the ark because it was about to fall down. And then, I, I don't know, thunder, bam, a clap of uh, lightning or something. And the fist of God, I don't know. And Uzzah collapses, dead. Maybe he's writhing on the ground. I don't know. Maybe it was a loud thunderous clap. Everyone heard it. Who knows? Let me read 7 through 8. And God struck Uzzah down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry. And David was afraid. Remember when reading Old Testament, you Bible students, right? You're like trying to figure this out. Sometimes you've got to just read it and go, what, what am I supposed to be experiencing here? Because what shocked me as I kept reading this over and over again, because this is kind of shocking, right? I mean, this is a good thing. It's like party and then, whoa. Notice the Bible does not pause at all, does nothing to explain or alleviate our shock. Our questions go unanswered. Our objections are not satisfied. We are kind of in the situation of those people immediately witnessing the events of this day. What in the world is happening here? And the, the, the way 2 Samuel's written, it just goes on. It doesn't even bother to try and explain. All it says is because of Uzzah's error, God struck him dead. I kind of wrestled with like, what is the, and again, like we did with 2 Samuel chapter 2, what am I supposed to be feeling as I read this? And it, I don't know if they felt this way back then, but as a 21st century American, I know what I was feeling and it is difficult to accept that God does not have to explain himself to me. He is not answerable to us. God has not obliged himself to your approval or your consent. That's what I don't like about this. Like, what, what did Uzzah do? This seems unfair. You have to explain yourself. And the way this is written, God's like, no, I don't. I do not have to explain my actions to you. There's a part of me that this is the kind of passage in the Bible that actually proves the authenticity of the Bible. We would never invent a God like this, right? I mean, this, this is not a very marketable God, right? You get enough of these kinds of scenes in the Bible, and you got a branding problem. No one's going to want to follow after if this is the kind of stuff that happens. And I'm always amazed that, you know, anyone who says that the Bible, the God of the Bible is just our projection, projection of our wish fulfillment, they're not reading the Bible I'm reading, right? This is not a projection of any kind of wish fulfillment I have. Or people say that, yeah, the Christianity, the Bible, that, that's a good crutch for your emotional needs. 
I don't know what emotional needs this is supposed to be meeting, but it's not something that I'm very comfortable with. These are the kinds of passages that make me realize there's got to be a lot of truth here because no one in their right mind writes this kind of stuff. Friends, can I suggest to you that our reaction to what takes place to Uzzah here is very similar to the individuals that are witnessing that event there in, in that this is a great an excellent indication of whether or not I'm going to believe he is God or I'm God. This challenges that. Now, as I read it, and I, and I assume that this is probably the feeling here, there's a couple of reactions to the way we're going to respond to this scenario. Now, re- reaction number one is kind of how, well, before I became a Christian, this is the kind of thing I would say. See, this is why I can't believe in God. It's this kind of stuff right here. I can't believe in God with this kind of stuff. Why would I want to believe in this kind of a God? First, let me say, if that's your reaction, and it can be, I get it. I understand your concern there. But I want you to think about something. If you insist that God must do everything to your approval, then you are implying that it's your assessment and perspective that is the true and correct assessment. If God has to um, answer to you, if God is accountable to you, then he's not God. You are. Right? So, so what it turns out to be is, it's not that you cannot believe in God. It's not that you can't believe in God as much as it is you won't believe you aren't. That's really what's going on here. The second response is kind of like the first, but maybe it's somebody who considers themselves a Christian and they hear this and they're like, oh man, if that, I'm out. If that's what God is, I was told Jesus was going to make my life easier, that basically he's going to help my spiritual mojo, and that, that, that's what Christianity is about. If this is it, I'm out, right? Because some people have been told that. That's the, all they've ever heard about Christianity. It's all about you, right? And you read this, you're like, whoa, I'm out. Now, again, there's a part of me that gets that. But if that's really what you're going to say, if that's your verdict, then that's a good chance, that's evidence that you probably were never in to begin with if this is what gets you out, right? If you're like, I'm bouncing, then there's a good chance you were never part of believing this anyway. A third response, wait, wait. Actually, there's four responses to this. So a third response, this is probably a minority of you, and there's probably some people in this church. A third response is this. You read that and you're like, well, of course, God's holy, I'm not. What's the problem? Move on, Pastor Rick. You're taking too much time. I get it, right? So there's a small minority. That's where you're at. Great. There's another response, the fourth and final response, which I think is a lot of people. I'm in. I'm not going to just bail on this, but this is hard. I think, I think that's the great, a great response. Yeah, the third one is awesome. If you can just accept this and move on, you got no problems. You're a mighty man or woman of faith. That's good. But I think a lot of people are just going to be, I'm in, but this is a little tough. This is, this is kind of like John chapter 6 and 7, where Jesus tells his disciples and blows their mind. Right? He says, if you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh, drink my blood. See, the problem is, you all reading that as 21st century individuals, you're oh, he's talking about communion. They didn't know. They're like, what is this? I'm out. And the disciples are left standing there. Jesus looks to them and says, are you going to leave too? And you can imagine what they're thinking. I left my 
profitable fishing business to follow you? And Peter says the most brilliant thing. Who else has the words of eternal life? He doesn't say, oh, I get it. You're sly. You're trying to weed, weed us out. He's, he says, I have no idea what this eat your flesh, drink your blood stuff is. Because as a Jew, that's sacrilegious. I'm not supposed to eat meat with the blood. But I know you. And I'm going to trust you. Friends, the basis of any good relationship is not you understand everything about that person. Because we, we don't. It's because you trust them. You know enough about their character to trust them. It's like any child with a parent, right? If you've got kids, you know. You can't explain to a three- or four-year-old. You can hardly explain to a 13- or 14-year-old why you do what you do. But you ask them to trust you because you love them. Now, if that's you, I think that's most of us probably in this, let me do what I can a little bit to help out. Because this is an amazing passage. Because actually David and Uzzah, and really, all the people of Israel should have known better because the rules were really clear about the ark. It was basically no touch, no look, no cart. As a matter of fact, in our narrative, go look at verse 3. The author is kind of indicating that there might be some problem here. Look at verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart. And then a line down, the sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God on it. Now, there's a good reason they did this. is because a few decades earlier, this is how the Philistines returned the ark of God to them. They put it on a cart and brought it back in 1 Samuel chapter 6. But, but God was very clear in Torah, that is not how you deal with my ark. According to Numbers chapter 4, when the children of Israel were to set out, the ark was supposed to be covered with layers and layers of, of clothing and material. Have you ever seen those pictures? The, the, the Levite priests are carrying the ark, and there's like, there's like light coming from the ark and all that. Well, that's fake, right? That's all on branding purposes. The ark was covered up by cloth. So the ark was supposed to be covered up in cloth, and the Kohathite clan of Levi, they were to carry the ark on their shoulders through the poles that were inserted into it, according to the design in Exodus 25 and Numbers 7. That's how the ark was supposed to be moved. It was not to be looked upon. It was not to be touched. Because if you did, you would die. That was the clear reality. By the way, this is exactly what happened decades earlier, 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 19, with the men of Beth Shemesh. They looked upon the ark and they died. Seventy of them. And I don't think it was like in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Remember that? I, I just, it just occurred to me. They all died when they looked at the ark too. Maybe they were better. Maybe they were pretty smart about that. The point is, um, you weren't supposed to touch it. You weren't supposed to look at it. And you weren't supposed to put it on a cart. A new cart or otherwise. Why all this? Why? Friends, God had always been trying to teach the people of God. God had been always trying to teach us Genesis to Revelation. He's always been trying to teach his people of his total otherness. That he is not like at us at all. He is radically different from us, radically pure than us. See, holiness is not prudishness. Holiness is certainly not smugness. Holiness is dangerous. 
That's exactly what being, we're being confronted with right here. I love what Tim Chester says. He says this, God is so holy that sin is burned up in his presence. And we're soaked in sin. We're like a rag doll soaked in the flammable liquid of our sin. And God is a raging fire. If God comes to us, then we'll be consumed by the holy fire of his presence. Like the ocean or like a lion, beauty, majesty, and danger can easily coexist. Now, I think, though, there's a dilemma. I think this is what the author is wanting us to see here and feel. We have a dilemma here. We cannot live with God because he is dangerous to sinners. But we can't live without God because he is the source of all that is good, beautiful, and true. We have a problem. This is the paradox. This is, this is a paradox that, that runs itself all through the Bible. You can't live with God. And you cannot live without God. We're hosed, to put it simply. The reader's supposed to read this and say, well, what, what's, what are we going to do? If the very manifestation of his goodness is our death, if I can't live with him because he's dangerous to me as a sinner, but I can't live without him because he is the pinnacle of beauty, truth, and good, I have a problem. David's question in verse 9 is the right place to start. He asks, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Friends, this is a great question because this is the exact opposite of presumption, isn't it? When you ask this question, you know God is not under your control. When you ask this question, you realize God is not answerable to you. We can never fully understand him. We certainly can't control him. How does this work? He is holy God, and he is not tame Actually, he's rather terrifying. If you read your Bibles, he's actually pretty terrifying. I know we love these bumper stickers like my, my best friend is a Jewish carpenter and God is my co-pilot and he's my buddy. And, and that's true, right? He, he's imminent to us. But in that, we've lost the fact that he's also transcendent from us. And I wonder if you have a category for that. Can you balance this wonderfully intimate, imminent God with this terrifying, transcendent being who is dangerous to your existence? Every time in the Bible, friends, humanity comes into contact with God. And, and sometimes it's a humble approach. And sometimes like, God, you owe me an explanation. When God does show up, you know what the response is, right? It's terror. I mean, it's sheer terror. You know, uh, whether it's Isaiah the prophet gets a vision of God in his throne room. He says, I am, woe, woe is me, I am unclean. Or the people of Israel, the children of Israel at the bottom of Mount Sinai when God comes down on the mountain and there's thunder and lightning and earthquakes and all the people cry out, no, we, we changed our mind. We said we wanted to see him, Moses, but no, you just deal with him. We don't want to deal with this, right? Or it's Job who goes through massive suffering, and, and wants an audience with God so that God would explain himself. And in God's loving kindness, he says, you, you really want to meet with me? Okay, here I am. And what does Job say? Oh, I'm undone. I did not know what I was talking about. Please get, get away from me. Or even when it's Peter. 
And he's at his fishing boat, this, this big burly fisherman. And he realized who this meek Jesus is. He says to him, get away from me. I am not worthy to be in your presence. He's not tame. He's dangerous. It's actually terrifying. This event is a dramatic reminder to David, to Israel, and all of us about God's holiness and that we approach him not on our terms. We approach him on his. This event reminds us our good intentions, which are genuinely good intentions, they're not enough. We don't get to dictate the terms of our meeting with God. God already dictated those terms. Now, if you're a Christian and you're, trying to, you're engaged, you're putting it together, you go, oh, I know how God dictated the terms. We have to renounce our sin. Yes, you're smart. You're, you're right. That's exactly what we have to do. But God's terms are more radical than that. It's not that we have to just renounce our sin. Friends, we have to renounce our righteousness. The reason I say that is because even non-Christians, people who don't believe the Bible, can recognize their, their lack, that they need, they need forgiveness, that they're not totally right and clear. They, they can repent of their sins. But a Christian repents of his righteousness. See, that's the difference between someone who understands the gospel and someone who doesn't. Someone who doesn't understand the gospel, they'll understand that they gotta repent of their sins. But a Christian says, no, even my righteousness I have to repent of because that is not enough. God does not accept my good intentions. His wonderful holiness demands perfection, and my righteousness is nowhere near that, no matter how well intended. I repent of my sins, and I also repent of my righteousness. My cart, even if it's a new cart, is not sufficient. And as you know, none of us can deliver on that. On that demand. See, friends, the, the whole point of this narrative here in, in 2 Samuel 6, this narrative about bringing the ark back into Jerusalem is a painful reminder that even our best efforts, our best intentions can actually deceive us to our true need. Right? Because here's the reality. I bet, because I'm like you, deep down in your heart, you do think, man, if I bring it out on a new cart and we're all stoked and celebrating on this, that's enough. We just learned the hard way. No, it's not. Whatever righteousness you've been working on, however long you've been able to overcome that sin, that habit, whatever it is, and you're starting to feel like, yeah, now, now God loves me a little bit more maybe than, than, than maybe earlier or maybe that person. Nope. The reason they put it on a new cart was because that was ritual purity. So they were like, yes, let's do this. And it didn't work. And so David asks the million-dollar question, how does the ark of God come to me? How does God's presence come to us? And friends, it is, it is not a simple coincidence that this particular piece of Old Testament furniture speaks so clearly of Jesus Christ, isn't it? The prophet, the priest, the king. Jesus does not merely contain the word of God like the ark contained the Ten Commandments. Jesus himself is the word of God. When the, when the priests come before the Ark of the Covenant every one day a year in Yom Kippur to atone for sins, they, they have to come back every day. Jesus dealt with sin entirely. He is the atonement for sin. And just as the Ark was the symbol of God's rule, Jesus is God's king. The Ark 
is pointing to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the very thing the ark symbolized. He is the ruling, the reconciling, the revealing God. Emmanuel, God with us. When David asks the question, how does God's ark come to me? The New Testament answers by saying, to the very God-man himself, Jesus Christ. Friends, it is only in Christ that you are safe from the holiness of God. It is only in Christ that you are safe from the holiness of of God. And because we are in Christ, because of Christ, we can live with God, not because he's no longer dangerous, but because if you are in Christ, you're no longer a sinner. That's why you can live with him. So the question you've got to ask yourself is, man, am I in Christ? Well, the answer to that question is, well, then did you repent of your sins? Good. But have you repented of your righteousness? Or are you still bringing out your new cart? Are you still saying, look at all this intent, look at all, all thousands of us are celebrating. That must account for something, God. No. Are you in Christ? The answer to that is, are you repenting of your sins and are also repenting of your righteousness? Stop trusting your efforts. Stop trusting and using your carts. He's already come to us in the form of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ. He rules, he reconciles, he reveals himself through his word, even in passages like this in 2 Samuel 6. God is good. Let me close with this. God is good, but he is not safe. The central symbol of the Christian faith, the cross, is a daily reminder to us of this fact. But in the cross, Christ reveals the ultimate goodness of God And in the cross, Christ removes the ultimate danger of God, not by doing away with God's holiness, no, but by doing away with your sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work of Christ. Father, thank you that it is not about the things we do. You're constantly reminding us of how different you function. And we couldn't find a a better scene of good intentions and right desires and all those things meeting catastrophically, crashing into the reality that sin is sin. No matter how well intended we might be, your holiness is dangerous to us. And Father, we thank you that we don't live in, in in the tension of that dilemma We don't have to worry about how will we live with God because God is dangerous to us because if we are in Christ, you are no longer a danger to us. Your righteousness, your holiness is not a danger to us. We actually imbibe it, become part of it, share in it, and experience it because of Christ. Father, may we love him more. May we look to him more, not to our performance, not to the way we struggle Surely, Lord, grieve our hearts over our sin. Yes, that is true, Father. Help us to long after um, hunger and righteousness. Jesus says in Matthew 5 to hunger and thirst for righteousness. But that's because that's what we were made for, not because we feel like that's the way we earn eternity. Lord, it's all because of what you have done in Christ. Help our eyes, help our gaze to be transfixed upon the beautiful Savior. And we'll thank you for it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.